Growing and scaling a business is complex. It can be very scary and lonely trying to navigate it all. It comes down to the community of trusted people you surround yourself with. Let's dive in to the Business as People podcast. Welcome back, Petros and Manoli. You guys are the gurus when it comes to anything in all e-commerce in Amazon. You guys are the co-founders and masterminds behind Granitas e-commerce solutions. So today we're going to dive a little deeper and really talk about a lot of the challenges and pain points that we're hearing, we're seeing as we're talking to like marketing directors, sales leaders, and C-suites. So like, what are some of the things that you guys are commonly hearing as a pattern, as a challenge? Yeah, one of the biggest pain points that we hear from, you know, prospective clients, new clients, is that they're spending money on advertising, but they're not getting the results that they hoped for. Uh, that seems to be probably the number one complaint that I hear as far as advertising and marketing on Amazon. So how do you guys start to unpack that to really get the true understanding of what's happening there? Yeah, there's a few things that could be going wrong. Let's start with the traffic itself. So on Amazon, typically for a keyword search or a competitor targeting, you're paying per click. So every time a customer clicks on your ad, you're charged, whatever that cost per click might be. So if you're showing your advertising to the wrong group of people, you're getting the wrong traffic. Those people might still click on your ad, but they were probably never likely to buy your product. So that may be the first problem that we would look at, you know, look at the keyword targeting, make sure we're targeting the right group of people that we actually think will be interested in purchasing our product. I mean, like pictures to me, I feel like it's maybe because we're in the marketing world, it's like mm -hmm. obvious that we should be targeting the audience we want to. What percentage of like these mid-market, you know, size companies who are spending, you know, 10 plus thousand per month on advertising are not building their campaigns correctly and not targeting the right audience? I think almost all brands have room for improvement. And there's, you know, probably the majority of brands are just sort of praying that it works out and don't really have a real strategy. They're bidding on keywords that aren't necessarily close to the thing that they're selling. For instance, one of our clients sells a toaster and I'm always looking to see who's running ads for toaster related keywords. And I'm seeing products like blenders, microwaves, you know, it, it's not a terrible strategy to have that kind of broad targeting, but I'm guessing most of these brands aren't really trying to like build brand awareness. They're really just trying to convert. And if you're showing a microwave for a customer that's looking for a toaster, that may not convert as well as you would hope. So I think their, their campaigns are typically too broad for what they're trying to accomplish. And you brought up a good point about brand awareness versus converting and what we call lead generation. And we see it all the time as well, like doing paid advertising just across the board, not just on Amazon. Like everyone just assume I'm going to put money into a channel and just get people to buy or click or convert. But there's actually a whole cycle. Like there's the awareness stage, the education stage, then there's the consideration stage. Like why should they consider your brand, especially if you're a brand that's not well known. And then the last one's convert, like maybe try the product, buy it, give a discount code, but everyone's on that bottom part, that decision converting phase. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do you help get folks to understand that they need to do these other phases before they get right to the end? I, my analogy is kind of like asking someone to marry you before they're dating you, right? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the typical rule of thumb is you need 10 plus contacts before someone decides to buy your product. The higher the price product, it might be even more than that. So what you want to do is you want to get people's attention at every point of their possible journey. 
So if you have a brand awareness campaign, you want to get people maybe when they're first searching for that category for all their options. And then when they come back, they may actually search for a different keyword when they're in that consideration phase, more detailed, you know, more features that they're looking for. And, you know, that's your middle of funnel. And that is the middle of that customer journey. And then once they're really ready to buy, you know, they're either typing in your brand name or typing in a very specific set of keywords. And that's your conversion, you know, your bottom of funnel. And we actually separate these for our clients into three categories. And we have three different keyword lists for that top, middle, and bottom of funnel. So that we're making sure that we're in front of the customers at every part of that journey that they might, might be searching it. Have you guys ever done a strategy where like, you know, on that bottom of the funnel where they're pretty much putting in like a model number, mm -hmm. can you try to then bring your own client who is competing with that particular brand and model number to show their ads? Absolutely. So you mean like a competitor's model number and we would be advertising against that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're about to buy, right? So they put in the mm -hmm. specific model number or the specific, you know, name of that product, but clients aren't unaware like there's an alternative what how do you guys do that strategy absolutely i mean that's a huge opportunity that bigger brands miss and that you know smaller brands can really take advantage of so you know bigger brands have all this brand awareness already kind of baked in they've done all the work they're running tv commercials so you're right somebody might come in and type in a model number that they saw somewhere else if we know that our product is a very close match or a replacement possibility for that we're definitely advertising that keyword if it makes sense from a cost per click perspective. The other thing you can do on Amazon is run ads on the listing page itself. So if I know my product is a better option than my competitor's product, I can run ads directly on their listing page. And literally like right next to where it says add to cart, you could see, you know, one of my ads for one of my clients. And it's visual in nature. So Manola, I know you're that creative genius, just kind of like making those little nuances, right? So like when you're doing these ads, what do you see are working to kind of help these ads stand out through all that noise? Yeah. So there's different ad types. So even within like targeting the listing, like on the listing page, there's different ad types. So there might be, there's a banner at the top, but you also have a sponsor display ad, which allows like custom graphics or, a, you know, a custom image. And then just like a normal ad that just has the main image. So we often like to use those like sponsor display, like let's get an image on there. Let's like sort of like separate this. So with the toaster example that Petros mentioned, you know, we have sponsor display ads running on competitor listings where we're showing the logo that stands out, you know, on a listing page, we're actually showing our client's logo or we'll show their toaster in like a kitchen setting, something that stands out. So we're not just like paying for an ad that's just the main image and we can actually test sometimes the main image will have a better effectiveness for the cost per click so we like to run these things test them and you know it depends on the product the more simple ads that cost less might end up doing better so we really love to use the data to see what works yeah i agree i think i'll tell our creative team like instead of just doing a b tests like literally do 20 tests like the more tests you can run, I think a lot of people say just do two or three, but then you're cutting yourself short. Like, why is it just two and three? Like there could be other variables. You have to test as many as you can and then look at the data and say, which one's the best. What's your feeling about that when it comes to testing? Like what's your cadence? How often should you change it? How many variables are you guys testing? Yeah. I mean, 
A lot of it depends on how many creative assets we have access to from our clients. We're always kind of begging for new creative, more finely targeted creative for specific target segments. But if we have those assets, you know, we'll test things like for a video ad, for instance, does a 40 second video ad work better than a 10 second video ad or a 25 second video ad? You know, that's one thing we'll test, like the length of an ad. Um, obviously different product features on those ads. So we'll say, is this product feature resonating more than this other feature? So we'll test like different product features in that way. And then we test them against different markets. So like one piece of creative might work really well for a certain target you know, segment, but might not work for another. So it's really as many variables as we can test, we try to test, but often we're limited by the amount of sort of assets that we get from our clients in that respect. Yeah. One cool example of this is we have a client and we were running two different video ads for them in the Amazon search results. One was a sort of generic video ad advertising their product, advertising their brand. The other video ad was sort of targeting a competitor without using the competitor's name. We were showing a side-by-side -side of their product versus the competitor's product and why the competitor's product is not only not as good, but it can often be dangerous to use. And that one we saw performed way better because the customers are actually seeing you know, the silhouette of that product is right above the video, right below the video ad. They know what they're comparing to. So like, oh, you know, we realized that one worked way better because, you know, we're fighting for a click. So that video that's comparing against the competitor and seeing, oh, wow, there's such an advantage to this product. That's a great example of using A-B testing with creative, using in this case, the variable was, you know, clicks, conversions. One video performed well, we ended up rolling with that one. Yeah, I think one mistake a lot of brands make is sort of an over-reliance on software and just thinking it's a numbers game. When often like the biggest wins are kind of like clever ideas like only a human could think of. So that's a really good example of something that worked amazingly well that a computer probably would have never thought of. So it's important, like the data is extremely important, but it's really important to have some human creativity and problem solving as part of the process. Ken, I mean, you're a data guy, so you live and breathe the data. How do you feel about, you know, Petra's comment about like having the human element versus like just relying on the data? <laughs> That's such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, my answer is, is that the two can work in concert exceptionally well. So they're no matter what data you're working with and whatever model that you're using, natural systems are always so complex and nuanced that the data collected is never going to be robust enough to capture all of that, at least at the level we're able to operate. Like we're not, you know, NASA calculating reentry. We don't have that kind of, you know, resource at our disposal. So that being said, the intangibles, which are often what we're reacting to with that human factor, are not always well captured in data sets. So the data set should always be used to confirm and inform decisions. But in some cases, specifically instances that you know Petros and Manoli are mentioning we're discussing now, you do need that human factor to really make things sing. And it's the application of the data that makes it, I think, the most powerful. So this is a philosophical discussion, you know, for sure. <laughs> but that's my initial reaction. I want to unpack that a little bit more, right? I think for people like, okay, what's the human factor? So like, what are the things you're looking for in the human factor to help 
you know, drive better data or just drive better successful campaigns. Um, anyone can jump in here. I mean, I can tell you our process is, you know, we're not sitting in a room like Mad Men and like thinking we're coming up with some genius marketing strategy. What seems to work for us is we come up with maybe five to 10 ideas we think will work. We test all those ideas and typically two or one will pop out as really effective. So we're always like testing and then using what worked and we just keep using it till it stops working typically. But it's good to just keep testing fresh, fresh creative to always have something that works and something that's fresh as well. I'll give you an example that Petros probably can identify with really readily. And it's the visual image that you have to use in the in your world of Amazon, right? So when you get to that Amazon product page, and I think you gave an example the other day, which was excellent, which is that just blowing up that image of the product label so that people could read it, because I do that all the time that elevates that product's performance, right? And that's mm -hmm. something that initially you wouldn't have known is going to be a data-driven point that you would understand, right? So that's kind of an example of that human interaction and human factor that you kind of just get. And it's not a data point that we collect. Maybe a survey would capture that at some point, but it's really an intangible. And maybe people you know, there's color theory, for instance, like with food, you know, a lot of colors are like brown or natural or earth tones, whatever makes people hungrier and they stay away from like cool tones, whatever the case is. Now they're studying that, but in many ways, those are intangibles, like with a given product, like what plays better, you don't always know those and data is not always going to answer that really quickly until you really explore it from a human perspective and ask yourself like intrinsically, do I like this or not? And then start asking why, like, it's just not data we're collecting. Yeah, Ken, that's a great point. And to build off of that specific example, I could see a situation where maybe you have, you know, an icing, you know, we sell buttercream icing. Maybe you have two different sizes. One's a five ounce and one's a two pound bucket. The two pound bucket, the text might be so small in this big bucket, you don't see the size. Whereas the four ounce, it's a smaller label. You see the size the data might show, oh, people want the four ounce more. It's getting more clicks. It's getting more buys. What you might not realize is, oh, it's actually just the labels visible. People know what they're clicking on. So <laughs> that's where that human element comes in where it's like, yeah. it's not that this smaller thing is more popular. It's just that it could be the case, not necessarily. It could be something with the color, something with the size, not necessarily the product itself. I mean, it, it could be like, I live in a very small cottage, right? And so I can't buy the two pound bucket. You would never know that the reason that I bought the smaller four ounce size and not the two pound mm -hmm. was because I had a storage issue in my house, right? So that's one of these outside data points that you simply just don't have the ability, at least initially to get at. So great example. I circle back to our like wasted ad spend, like a lot of wasted ad spend comes from people clicking on your listing to find out a size or a color or some information, if you can communicate that on your main image clearly, they might not click on you at all. So you'll save a lot of ad spend by communicating very clearly. I mean, we're probably all consumers of Amazon one way or another. And yeah, when I'm trying to buy different sizes, like I rather know right away through an image, like this is the bigger ounce, 32 ounces versus a 12 ounce. And sometimes you can't see that. So then you're searching and searching. Then all of a sudden you land on your competitors because you're searching so much oh, there's another 
brand that's selling the same thing for a dollar cheaper and now you lost that sale so like brands i think if they can do better creative and just better information on the human element right like how do i shop and understanding that side of it then you'll start to see your data probably improve mm -hmm. i, I want to ask this to aaron because aaron like you know you're from a lead strategist standpoint you're looking at the full field and looking at like the research side of it building campaigns and strategy then working with a specific creative teams to kind of do the messaging and the branding. So like, I always say it's three things. It's how you build the campaign, it's the messaging, and then it's creative. And I feel like those are the three buckets that you're constantly changing. How do you approach those three buckets, Aaron? And like, which ones do you start to look at first when things aren't working? Man, I always look at the data first and like what's going on in the data really explains to me or will give me a, a lens into where I need to go look. I think a lot of it is just understanding, you know, from experience, I've been inside so many campaigns and different conundrums. I kind of have, there's a, a nature about it, you know, so it's almost like, you know, the half art, half science kind of thing. So it's almost artistic in a way and how you choose to look at the data to unpack it in a way that's meaningful to make those decisions. You know, I think Petra is how you said, you know, you start with five ideas and test them. I'm the other way. I'm like madman. I'd rather sit in there and sip on the bourbon and all right, there it is. Boom. And then, you know, go all in. That's just the creative side of me. But the analytical side knows that going through the hypotheses and testing everything properly and having the data, that's the difference between the old way and the new way. And, you know, I think how we can put those together is the key. And that's it. It's like, how do those three different areas come together and how do you break them apart properly? And, you know, it's like when we onboard our clients, or go through a discovery, we're talking about all of these, you know, with equal amount of time. So, I mean, there's not, I don't really think there's one that's heavier than the other. It's that mix that needs to be refined properly, depending on the client and the needs and budgets and all that. Yeah. It goes back to that human factor. Again, like someone who's managing this campaign or the partners managing it and working with a marketing director or marketing department, if they're outsourcing to an agency or consultant, they have to be able to understand these three components. Okay. Did I build a campaign correctly with all the parameters? Is the messaging on par and are we nailing the creative? I mean, there's a lot of variables there. So it could be overwhelming to folks to try to really understand that, you know, without having like, look, there's five of us here, right? It takes a team, you know, it's not one person. It's impossible for one person, even two people to assess a campaign and why it's not working. Like there's a lot of people that go deep in their skill set. So when people don't have access to all these experts, you know, Petros, what's the best advice you can give them? Start with a small budget and start small is probably my first piece of advice. I think people get a little bit carried away at the beginning, end up blowing through their whole ad budget, and then they think that Amazon doesn't work. So if you're a beginner, like if you're just starting out, if you don't have years of experience, just start simple, make a campaign, run ads for all your branded search terms, do your keyword research, test out a keyword list, but just start with a small budget and grow it over time. And you should be able to gain those skills, you know, by the time you're running a much bigger budget. If the stakes are higher and, you know, you need to run right away, you know, I don't necessarily recommend trying to learn it at, at that speed. Yeah, you're going to have to find an expert. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you can only do so much, right? And there's reasons why there are agencies like yours that exist or consultants. Um, and we're seeing a lot more businesses be more open to, instead of hiring someone full-time, they're partnering with consultants or agencies to do the work because that's what it is today what's the expectation of like okay we're going live with the campaign we need to test it see if it works iterate until it actually is kind of running pretty smoothly like what's that time frame look like 
Yeah, we typically say three to six months. You know, if, if the brand is brand new, like never been released to the world, it's probably going to take closer to four, five, six months. If that brand's been on Amazon for years, maybe it'll take, you know, two months. So typically between two to six months is how long it takes to build well, what I would call a sophisticated Amazon advertising campaign or marketing structure. And Ken, you're always looking at opportunities and channels and trying to predict success, right? With paid campaigns. Like what do you feel is typically the common myth or debunking about ad campaigns? And just like, why is it not working? This should be working. This channel is not working or I'm spending all this money. Why is it not working? Well, I mean, man, talk about asking me doozies. Two questions and they're both doozies (laughs) today. (laughs) What I would say is kind of a little bit of a politician's answer, meaning I'm not going to answer directly. I'm going to give some supporting evidence and maybe we'll get to it. One thing is timing, right? Everyone wants immediate result. And that's not really how any of this works. So let's look at sort of the temporal component. And there's a process we all do, whether it's Amazon or any given campaign, Even how you know we go through life in general, we're optimizing, right? And so optimization, when you initially look at a brand new campaign, it's often at its lowest point in terms of performance, especially measurable ROI performance, right? It's just getting rolling and we don't understand that well. So when you're looking at that, the first several weeks or even first several months of a campaign should be looked at not from the what the endpoint may be, but is it optimizing? Are you going in the right direction? Is that directional trend looking like it's going to end up where you want it to go? So I'll give you one quick example, which is that, you know, Petros Manolia will understand this. this is a client that we work on together. And with that client, some of their channels actually don't achieve ROI on a given month. However, Looking at the optimization of the performance of some of those channels over time, they are scheduled to do so. And as a group, we initially projected that they would be a positive ROI, not losing money as a whole during, you know, sometime after like a couple months of doing business. But initially they were losing money. What the powers that be and their decision makers needed to know, are we headed in the right direction? Are we doing the right things? Like, and if they hadn't looked at it from that long-term perspective and the optimization, they may have just cut off all advertising and said it's not working, right? That would have been the entirely wrong decision because as both Manoli and Petros know, this is a company that has huge potential upside and is doing really well. It just needed that time to ramp up and to know that optimization was occurring and putting the company in strong footing for whatever their plans are to get acquired or just you know show that they're profitable, et cetera. So I don't know. I think that's a good illustration of how to look at it. Well, let me throw something in there too. I think a lot of it, people forget about the multi-channel attribution. Everybody's looking specifically, okay, what's Amazon doing? I mean, I see in data all day long. Before somebody converts, oftentimes we'll have clickbacks three, four times, you know, over a couple of weeks, sometimes over a couple of months, sometimes over a couple of years, depending on the life cycle and sales cycle. So, you know, making sure that that attribution effect is being tracked properly. And then also that the goals that are being established, I forget where the term was coined, but the smart goals, you know, like making sure that they're specific, but measurable, I forget the exact acronyms, but it's making sure that you got a goal that it can actually be measured. It makes sense. And you can learn from it and not just some superfluous, like, okay, I want more, you know what I mean? So I think having those two things in there will 
redefine how you look at those channels in a way too. Because I see a lot of it now, even with more sophisticated clients, they come to us and they have no idea, like if they go back from social to search to Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. over to the private website and they come back from the same referral source or something. So having that in there really, that can affect a lot of things over time. Yeah, Aaron, that's a good point. This is something I struggle to communicate a lot of the time, like even just within Amazon, not even thinking about other channels. So let's say we're running a video ad, they click on that video ad, they learned about the product, you know, maybe they talked about it with their spouse, they decided to buy it. When they come back, they're going to type in, you know, the brand name. So that video ad didn't get any attribution because it wasn't the last click. So it's really easy for brands to be like, that video ad doesn't work. Yep. I'm on Facebook sometimes and I'll see an ad because we are who we are. I don't want to be tracked. So I open up an incognito (laughs) window and go over to it and type it in directly. So Mm -hmm. how do you tie that together? You know what I mean? And that's where I think, yeah, exactly. I I put my pens down and point the Ken because we can pull all these things together. And then Mm -hmm. if we know these behaviors are going on, then we can start really telling them. That's the dark funnel story um, that yeah, we so, bring up. You know what I mean? There is a way to the dark side with the light. <laughs> so we're talking, you know, the at- attribution is critical in all of these equations, right? And understanding and linking up success for goals and ROI. And, the, you know, that name, the dark funnel is super valid. And there are a variety of companies that are working on closing those loops, right? So one of them, like at enterprise level, is incrementality. So we work with a company that, is leading in the field of incrementality, which is measurement of attribution independent of any tracking. So essentially what you do is you will hold out an entire channel for an entire state or region for a period of months or months, a month or months. And then you can actually measure statistically the volume of sales lost or attributed to that particular channel. So that's one way to do it. And it's been fun working with that company. The other way to do it is you have the actual sales that occur. So for instance, um, someone buys icing, two gallon bucket, and you have 10,000 people that do that over time, or you know, even a much smaller number. You can take that information, which is their physical address. And then let's say you don't know how they got there. You can actually overlay that if you structured your ad campaigns and your other stuff appropriately, And you can link that up geospatially. So quite often what we will find is, and I recently did this for a company that they're like, we don't know, you know, because we don't have tracking in appropriately, we're losing whether or not all of our ad spend is actually generating these sales or if it's just, you know, through word of mouth or whatever it is. Well, it turned out when we overlaid where their ads were because we had structured the campaigns just by zip code on a national campaign level. We overlaid where they were getting their clicks and where they were getting their attention with their sales, which had been disconnected from tracking. We saw that they were only experiencing sales where they had placed ads. They were not getting any sales anywhere else that they had not been placing ads. That's direct attribution. And you can then say, okay, even though it's the dark funnel, because we couldn't use a tracking code to show that, we are able to say that, say, 95% of your sales are attributable to these ad campaigns. So there are ways of getting around that, and that's kind of the fun aspect of it all. And that's a big question mark, right? The dark funnel is a huge issue. So can to follow up on that, to do that layering, is that something yeah. any marketing manager can figure out and do themselves? Like, <laughs> No, not unless they go to a lot of school and buy some pretty expensive programs and then hire a team to utilize that. I don't know that. Us, right? 
<laughs> That's right. Well, the barrier of entry is pretty big. Like who's going to invest in the infrastructure to be able to answer that question? And a lot of what we've done is basically to use a, the common, you know, colloquial term now is we've hacked together methodology that we consider proprietary. And it's kind of like the Coke method, right? Like it's kind of all out there. It's in, you know, academia and whatnot, but the way we've pieced it together allows us to get at those questions pretty readily. It comes down to the ability to mark up your content properly. So we've got a big transition of going to, you know, customer data platforms, server-side tracking versus pixel-based tracking. So, you know, there's a lot of, like, think about PDFs from our B2B clients. A lot of them don't think about, we can track everything interaction with that. You can track the download. And then if we got links within the PDFs and we use UTM parameters, then we have a trackable source. So if you take the time to really look at all of your content, all the touch points, and, and like people even say, it's hard to track organic posts on social because you know, you'll know you lose referrals sometimes, why not put UTM parameters in all the links that you're applying, period, across the board for everything. And yep. you know, even like within video content, like video is getting much more sophisticated where now you have call to actions and layovers that you can put in there. So all these things with links, there is a point of trackability. And I think taking the time to really set that up, and that's something we're doing now because we're taking that data first approach is how do we mark everything up properly? How's that data going into the platforms? then how are we unifying the data and then reporting on it? Yeah. I have a question for the Amazon crew. How important do you consider first-party data? I wish we had access to more of it. Amazon doesn't really give us much at this point. I do hear rumors are going to start sharing more of that. But at this point, it's really just whatever ad data we can, you know, experiments we can run on our own. So I guess the follow-up question is, if you had a way to take first party data, you know, that gold mine of the client themselves and, mm -hmm. and leverage that or put it into formats that you could then make decisions on to mitigate risk or get more efficient with how you're doing your work. Is that useful in the Amazon arena? Yeah. I mean, we always have to be careful of too much information overload, but yeah, I mean, if we can get it in a useful form, we could definitely use that to build hypotheses and to test, you know, within the Amazon system for sure. So what would that usable form be? Is it like, um, you know, don't advertise the Yankees in Boston or, you know, <laughs> what does that information look like to you? Yeah, I mean, the one thing you cannot do on Amazon quite yet is pick, you know, geolocations, which I wish you yeah. could. That would make things much easier. But one thing we do track already with our clients is where the products go, like where they're shipping to. And that gives us a general idea of like, they can take that data and use that in their general marketing. But at this point, the fact that Amazon doesn't really let us advertise demographics or geography, we're pretty limited in how we can use some of that stuff. But I'm hoping that they open that up at some point. Do you think as they evolve their platform, they're going to have to start giving more bells and whistles? I mean, like think about Facebook, like with all the psychographic targeting we used to have, the not lowest trades went away after the last election, you know, with all that stuff. So do you think Amazon's going to kind of have a evolution that they don't want to have? <laughs> that, I mean, they obviously have incredible first-party data that they use to launch products. So they know if a product's going to sell before it ever launches. Yeah. They don't share that with us. But the rumor is, you know, we're an Amazon advertising partner, so we get a little bit of the inside scoop. What they used to hold in-house, so you used to have to spend 500K a year. Actually, it might be a month. I can't remember the exact numbers. But, you know, they told us to have access to this DSP platform. You had to work with Amazon. Amazon ran the campaigns. You had to give them at least 35 to 50,000 a month to run those campaigns. 
and then they would share like a small sliver of that first party data with you. So it's like stuff like, you know, how many people purchase within the first 30 days of seeing your product, 60 days, 90 days, a lot of useful stuff. But the rumor now is that they're actually moving all that Amazon managed advertising to the self-service platform. They're taking away those minimum budgets. So from what I hear, we're going to start getting access to that data. Oh, that's cool. uh, the one issue with Amazon is the fact that people share accounts. So it's really hard to get demographics that are accurate because, you know, a family of five, five people that are all different and have different interests are all buying on the same account. So even if they had demographic data, I wouldn't trust it all that much at this point until they find a way to sort of separate those different age groups. Uh, I never thought about that because my wife and her sister share an account. The interesting thing that you can do there is that you can actually, there's kind of like cohorts and sub cohorts, right? And Mm -hmm. Google uses that term cohort. They tried a cohort targeting and I don't know what they're doing with it now, but you actually can parse out based on a lot of that information, the cohorts that are available, and then you can make decisions related to that. So That question, while complex, what you just mentioned there, that sort of issue, it is surmountable from our side, right? Meaning how do we leverage that to make a product sell better or whatever? So if Amazon does go towards allowing a little bit more wiggle room on our end to what we can provide to get the product out there and choose our audience a little bit, there are a lot of things that can be done. It's almost just like opening Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, I'm buying stuff for my kids. So either way, I guess, you know, even they're not on it, but they'll search like for stuff. Like I'll, I'll say, Hey, what do you guys want? And like, you know, they'll search for certain things, but still I'm the one purchasing it. Right. So they're going to feed me ads for kids stuff, but I get it. If they're teenagers or other adults, you know, my wife can, you know, mm-hmm. her family of six. So we're using one account to buy everything. They must have some type of data. I mean, I think they're aware of that, right. There's gotta be something behind the scenes where they're knowing how to maximize purchase revenue that would be one way because i'm sure everybody's going to the amazon account from their different mobile device and we all have that unique identifier in there so that could definitely be a way yeah i'm sure amazon knows a lot more than they share with us oh yeah (laughs) yes they do oh man Well, you mentioned before, Pedro, that they're turning into a search engine, right? I mean, they're the number one product search engine by far at this point. So any last tidbits here, guys, if marketing managers are listening to this or all the agencies who are really trying to maximize on Amazon, I think, you know, some summary takeaways is smart goals, really planning it out. I think, and you're right, a lot of people just jump right into it. Hey, I have $20,000, let's just build a campaign and go. But there has to be this thoughtful process of like really understanding the journey understanding the habits and behaviors, understanding that there's dark funnels where you're not going to get attribution, but you're just doing it right. Known as a human, outside of data, as a human, these are probably the steps that are happening before a purchase happens that could happen offline or again, not being tracked. So there's a lot of these variables that this, whoever this marketing manager has to do. And of course, then they have the data. So that, that's useful. Is there anything else that we're missing or you guys want to kind of have you know, your last takeaway? Yeah, one thing we haven't talked about, which is probably the first thing that everyone should do before spending 20 grand on ads, make sure your (laughs) listing pages actually convert. Send a small amount of traffic to your listing pages, check that conversion rate, and make sure that those pages convert. Otherwise, you're just, you know, sending money into a black hole. 
what do you mean by that? Like, how can I confirm that it's converting? I know they can probably go into more of the details, but from a math perspective, you know, if I send 500 people to this listing page and it converts at 10%, I'm probably safe to send 5,000 people there. If I send 500 people, it converts at 0.1%. That means I better change my listing page, change my price, change my offer somehow to get that conversion rate up. Because it's easy to get people to click on an ad, but getting them to convert, you better make sure that that works before you send those clicks over. Is there a minimum conversion number? Like, I mean, like, because sometimes like 1% could be good, right? If you're getting the revenue you want. So what's a number that people should strive for? Yeah, we have clients that have 1% conversion rates and do great, but a lot of it depends on their profit margin, their price point, where some people get in trouble is they sell a $15 product and their cost per clicks are three to five bucks. It becomes really difficult to make money doing that. And your conversion rate better be, you know, 50%. You better have a high repeat customer rate because you're losing money on that first sale. If you have a huge profit margin, you're selling a $500 product, your cost per clicks are $1, you know, your conversion rate has a lot more flexibility. We Manoli. have clients in both of those boats, actually. Uh, I guess like the last question to Manoli here. So when you're looking at these listing pages and you're making adjustments, like where typically you go to things that you're improving immediately or you commonly see is the issue? Yeah, so it starts with a main image and you want to make sure your main image stands out in search. And then once they click on that listing, you want to make sure their listing has, you want to fill all the positions of images. So typically there's seven visible images. You want to give as much visual information as you can. They don't know what this product is. They can't see it. So you want to have all that visual information there, optimize bullet points, you know, describe your product, talk about the specs, the dimensions, the weight, whatever's relevant to that product, you know, the selling points. You want to have A plus content below the listing, between the listing and the reviews, you know, expand on your brand, expand on your product line, show off your brand identity. Those are the three main ones. If you have a brand store, even better, they can find more information there. You also want to seed questions and answers below the A plus content. So if someone is looking for a kitchen appliance, they want to know if it fits on their counter. Hey, does this electrical voltage work? Will it fit on this counter? Whatever the questions would be for that product. Again, you want to make sure we're limiting negative reviews. We want to make sure we're decreasing the cost per click. So like we don't want to waste click money on someone who's not going to buy. So yeah, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. That's sort of the basic overview images, copy A plus content questions and answers, brand store, and to tie it back even, cause this is very like, it works together. It's not just like one, two, it's very like interplayed with the ads. So when it comes to like cost per click, like when we're running an ad with custom creative, we want to make sure we're getting the right customer to that listing. So the video ad we run or the headline banner graphic we run, we don't want to just maximize clicks. We want to maximize the right clicks which might mean at the cost of the total clicks, we get more clicks that convert. So if we're selling a toaster, we wanna to make sure if it doesn't toast bagels, that we're not advertising that on like toaster for bagels keywords. You know, we don't want those people because they're gonna either not buy or leave a negative review. So very, very interconnected with the ads, but you wanna fill that visual information. You wanna to appeal to the right customers. All right, guys, thank you for all the great knowledge. I think we had an awesome conversation today. Hopefully this brings some awareness around like why campaigns aren't working, how they can improve it.
So, you know, of course, uh, folks who are listening, if you ever need to reach out to any of us, we're available. You can find us on social, on our websites, all the information are in the show notes. And until next time, looking forward to having you guys back on. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. If you have any questions and topics you'd like us to cover, please email me at podcast at inthinkagency.com or message me on LinkedIn.